Welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Greg Wilpert. Today we're going to take a look at Chile's failed constitutional reform referendum. About a week ago, on September 4th, Chileans overwhelmingly voted to reject a new constitution, with 62% voting against and 38% voting in favor. The turnout for the legally required vote was 85%. President Gabriel Boric, who himself became a president only a year ago and was a supporter of the draft constitution, said that he will propose a new path forward that will lead to a new constitutional proposal eventually. The result was a major blow to Chile's left and its social movements, which had successfully pushed for a constitutional reform process ever since the October 2019 revolts, strikes, and protests that shook, shook Chile more than any other time since dictator Pinochet was forced out of office in 1990. How did this referendum come about? Why did it fail now? And what does it mean for the future of Chile? These are some of the questions we'll be exploring with my guest, René Rojas. René is Assistant Professor of Human Development at the State University of New York, Binghamton. He is originally from Chile and a frequent contributor to the publication Jacobin, among other publications, and also an editor for the journal Catalyst. Thanks for joining me today, René. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be with you again. <clears throat> so let's start with the background for this uh, draft constitution. That is, how did it come about? What happened? Just give us a brief summary if you can. Yeah, well, as you said in your intro, um, what led to the um, drafting of a new constitution was a uh, mass social rebellion in October of 1919. Um, that, um, known as the estallido, or the social explosion, that explosion itself was preceded by a decade-long cycle of protest where mass movements grew in scale and in influence. After the estallido or this mass rebellion occurred in October of 2019, uh, the Chilean political class uh, decided that it would make a major concession to the mass movements on the ground that really were keeping the heat on all political institutions and on the political class across the board. And that concession was that it would allow the Chilean people to vote in a plebiscite whether they wanted to draft a new constitution. Up to that point, up, up until the present, in fact, the constitution that governs Chile is a constitution that was imposed um, under the authoritarian, the military dictatorship of, of Augusto Pinochet in 1980. And when redemocratization occurred in 88, 89, 90, um, the part of the settlement, right, part of the pact to open up a process of democratization included the preservation of this dictatorship, which really enshrined um, a pro-market neoliberal set of dictates. So fast forward again to the estallido, to the explosion, with the people you know, and protests raging on the streets. Um, finally, the political class, which you know includes both center-left and center-right. At the time, there was a center-right government. But both sides, right, the two coalitions really managed neoliberal um, democratic neoliberalism achieved it throughout. And they're the ones who said, okay, um, we will make this concession. And a year later, Chileans voted. They voted not only to um, draft a new constitution by just wide, a landslide margin, 80 to 20, well, 78 to 22, in fact. They also voted around the same, in, in the same proportion, um, to have completely new representatives 
draft a constitution. So there would then be elections for assembly delegates to draft a new constitution. Um, that was the what's called the entry plebiscite, the opening plebiscite. And everyone knew that a year after the assembly, the de you know, delegates um, inaugurated the assembly, they would produce a draft and we would have an exit plebiscite, right? Where Chileans would ratify or reject the product of the assembly. And last Sunday, right, um, was the exit plebiscite which you described. In the interim, as you also noted, um, Chile's new left that really emerged from these new mass movements that have expanded since around 2011, 2012, um, the new left was voted into power in runoff elections in December of last year, right? So there seemed to be a shakeup of Chilean politics, of the um, status quo ante, the, the, the ruling regime, right? And also, again, a um, an upsurge of momentum for progressive change, right? And a trajectory toward the actualization of the demands of the movements all along, and that would be the ratification of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Instead, what happened was that the Constitution was resoundingly defeated, 62 to 38, and as you also describe, I think, I think very aptly, it represents just a devastating blow to the broader process of reform underway, to the government in power, Boric's government in power, and also to the left and struggles for reform more generally. Mm -hmm. um, I want to get to uh, the reasons for the uh, why it was rejected in a moment, but let's before we get there, uh, let's take a brief look at the uh, proposal itself. Um, I mean, it's said to, uh, to be um, a constitution that's 170 pages long with 388 articles. Uh, some people would say that's too long. Which, of course, it's actually, if you compare it to other recent uh, uh, Latin American constitutions, it actually seems to be more or less on a par with those, uh, in particular thinking of the Venezuelan, the Ecuadorian, and the Bolivian constitutions. Um, but um, also one of the things that the New York Times pointed out, uh, which I guess some people have criticized, is that it contained over 100 rights, more than any constitution in the world. Um, now, give us a rundown of what you consider to be the proposal's most important elements. It's, an, it's a great question. And one of the problems with how people um, read constitution or, you know, um, assessed it, was precisely that there was so much in it that anyone could take something that they could find something they they um, valued in it just as likely as they were to find something that they disapproved, right? And so if I tell you what I thought I think are the most important elements of it, um, I'm I'm only pointing to those features, right? That I think should have been at the forefront. But along with those, there were a set of other features and rights and proclamations, right, that I think were problematic. Uh, in my view, the Constitution, the draft, right, of this new charter um, can be, be viewed on the whole, as you said, as one of the most progressive charters in the world. Um, the one that defends the broadest range of rights in the world, right? There, there's certainly that. But I think within that, you can make distinctions. And there were two types, I think, of rights and protections enshrined in, in the draft. And they set up 
key cleavages along which uh, people agreed or disagreed in the plebiscite. The first set of rights are what you might call basic core universal material rights. In my reading of what what's happened in Chile over the last 15 or so years is that um, these are the rights that Chileans have been clamoring for. These are really the rights that motivated people um, into the streets, that pulled people into the streets, um, that uh, I think uh, really shaped their grievances and demands all along in this cycle of, ups, uh, of protest and, and upsurge and mobilization. They include um, the rights to um, better working conditions, right? So a number, a set of labor protections that include um, the right to bargain collectively, something that in Chile has not existed since the dictatorship, even after redemocratization. They include the right um, to a guaranteed and, and to guaranteed and dignified public pensions, and they include the right to um, quality public education and healthcare. Right? There's also some mention of, of, of housing as well, guarantees for housing. When the estallido or the rebellion happened, this was these were the demands at the forefront, right? There's no doubt about that. Whether people had a well um, articulated, in terms of policy, right, uh, notion of what that would look like, that's probably not. That's not. It's not clear that that's the case. But certainly, the energy behind the constitution was fueled by these types of grievances and demands. Um, behind the, the, the explosion, I should say. That's one set. But along with those, right, there were another set of rights that you might call more particularistic or identity-based rights that have to do with a number of different forms of inequality and oppression um, that indeed rack Chilean society. Um, gender rights and protections, right? Indigenous rights and protections. Um, ecological rights and protections, right, and and so on and so forth. My reading of what happened, the rejection, is that the latter set of rights eclipsed the former, leading to confusion, leading to suspicion and mistrust around, among most working Chileans. Because we should be clear, the rejection was delivered by ordinary working Chileans. There's no doubt about that. Now, be, because the trimmings, right, these what you might, might call identitarian and special issue trimmings were so prominent both in the assembly and the debates of the convention itself, and they were really the main banners that the left that was voted into the assembly championed. Right? Because that was so prominent, because that was so visible and so loud, I think many Chileans felt this constitution might not actually promote the other set of rights. There was a lot of doubt and suspicion about that. Um, and so that that's my assessment, both of the nature of the rights and protections that were enshrined in the draft and also how um, politically they played out in the vote. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting that I saw uh, one of the commentators uh, highlight was, of course, that also the role of the state in 
in Chile. That is, uh, according to the old constitution, uh, the state was supposed to play practically no role. Uh, therefore, it basically enshrined neoliberalism, except, you know, of course, to protect contracts and the usual neoliberal stuff, basically, and protect property. Um, and whereas the new constitution really gave the state much bigger role uh, in uh, in almost every aspect. And that, uh, and then, of, of course, another aspect was that apparently, I don't know if this is true, but one of the th claims that I'd heard was that the um, that it didn't enshrine the right to property, private property or something like that, which of course, you know, set the right uh, <laughs> off, um, which of course, you know, ordinary people oftentimes are uh, reacted negatively as well, just because, you know, they might have an apartment or a car they're afraid they're going to lose because the right is scaring them with that. So I just want to hear from you a little bit about that uh, contrast, really, between the old constitution, the new constitution. I mean, um, it does sound like it was like a 180 degree turnaround from that old constitution. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I, I, absolutely. Um, in fact, you know, as as someone on the left and as you know, someone who, who counts himself among progressive sectors and really wanted this constitution to pass, I, I think it was laudable that the constitution um, mandated a very activist state, right? Um, the state to be active and intervening in guaranteeing these fundamental rights, um, both of the kind of universal material type and also the more particularistic identitarian type. Um, I think that did um, open the, the, the door in a way, open a window for the right to the rights propaganda and elite propaganda to sow even more confusion. The way I would put it is that there was already confusion and distrust and that was preyed upon and exploited by the right fake news, all kinds of propaganda, etc. With respect to property rights, uh, this did become an issue. Surprisingly, you might think. Um, and it was particularly heated around housing. There, there was the idea spread by elite media and the right that um, the Constitution did not guarantee people's property. Um, it's not actually the case. The Constitution did guarantee um, property rights, but it also made um, included stipulations whereby the state could actively intervene right, to guarantee people's, for instance, uh, right to housing, right? Now, what has, I think, uh, befuddled a lot of um, observers and, and, and um, analysts is why ordinary poor working Chileans would be so worried about this, right? Um, and, and my view is that it's because, as you mentioned, you know, Chileans have now suffered 50 years of extreme liberalization where it, you know, any efforts to secure a modicum of economic and social security has come through individualistic and atomized activities and efforts, right? There's, and so there is not, you know, strong trust that the state can actually do these things well, right? And will actually look out for people's interests. And that's what I think the right, you know, corporate media, really manipulated um, those types of fears. Now, I think that was an open battle. And I think the left and Chile's, you know, new radical activists should have launched into that battle, right? Steadfastly and with a laser focus, trying to explain that indeed the point of the constitution or one of its points was 
to fight for these basic universal rights. Right? Instead, it got caught up in you know, the entire array of social justice issues, right? Um, really, really, uh, as I said earlier, bearing almost, eclipsing um, the central core uh, concerns of ordinary Chileans. And that allowed the right to be extremely effective um, in its manipulation and propaganda. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so, so on the one hand, we've got this aspect that you're mentioning that that it got sidetracked essentially by focusing on these kind of uh, identity uh, kind of arguments and 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 rights uh, uh, but on the other hand there was a lot of disinformation uh and i'm just wondering uh, if you is there a way to kind of figure out what was played a larger role what do you think i mean uh you know what, what was more important there um so my view is that um, you know, the, the loss of focus and, and getting caught up in, again, a bevy of identity-focused issues was the, the main cause of the defeat. That's not to say that fake news, um, disinformation, all that didn't play a role. It most certainly did, right? But it played a role within a certain context, shaped already by the left's priorities, the left's tactics and you know and some of the strategic blunders. Um, when this question comes up, I always think back to the opening or the entry plebiscite, right? Um, in October of I think it was two thousand twenty. Now, um, same thing was happening, right? The fake news was there. The hysteria that Chile was headed toward becoming what they would say at the time, Chilezuela. Right, um, we're on the path to becoming Venezuela, right? With all its economic hardships, with all its blunders in policy, right? Um, with its uh, dysfunctional, you know, social services and, and institutions, whatever. Well, that's because they're radicals. They adopted socialism, and if we do the same thing, that's that will be our outcome as well. Well, in spite of an incessant, right? Um, flurry of these types of media um, attacks, if you will, right? Chileans still came out and voted 80 to 20 for the new constitution, right? So, you know, there's no doubt in my mind or in anyone's mind who was on the ground that people were confused and, um, you know, the, 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 the disinformation did sink in. But in my view, that was successful because the blunders of the left had already kind of laid the groundwork for it to, to, to be successful. To begin with, you know, a project like this, constitutional overhaul, is going to be challenging, right? There's no doubt about it. And, you know, because it's one thing to say, get rid of what sucks in the old system, right? But when it comes to actually defining and laying out what the new system will look like, it's going to be quite contentious, right? And my view is that any hope for the this process to keep going and for the Constitution to pass, right, um, rested on um, a pretty disciplined, right, strategy of focusing on and promoting these core universal material rights. And the left did almost the exact opposite. Just to give you a sense, um, I mean, we can go into 
really the uh, terrible sectarian moralizing behaviors of many of the delegates in the assembly, which was also punished. I mean, part of the vote was a punishment against the assembly and, and, and the people who were voted into it. Um, but leaving that aside, if you just look at the text of the Constitution, it's really confusing. I mean, you kind of alluded to this at the beginning. But let's just take actual issues. Gender and gender rights and perspectiva de género, gender perspective, right, is um, mentioned over 50 times, including in articles that have to do with police reform and the um, reform of the judicial system, right? And the, and the military, the military should adopt una perspectiva de género. What, what does that mean? It's not even clear what that means. Anyway, that appears 50 times. Um, the other, you know, uh, topic that people were very, very concerned about and very confused about was um, indigenous rights. And we can talk a little bit more about that because that ended up playing a big role, right? Well, um, the rights to indigenous communities and people, right, as a nation within a state, a plurinational nation, this became a big topic, plurinacionalidad, right? So plurinacionalidad and indigenous rights appeared 75 times in the text, right? If you compare that to Social Security, right, it's just day and night. Social Security appears 10 times. Labor rights appears nine times, right? So you can imagine, you can imagine that people had apprehensions. <laughs> they had very real apprehensions about what this meant. It's not that ordinary Chileans are against gender equality and gender parity. It's not that they're against indigenous rights, right? But I think it's reasonable to say, why should I um, support this if I see my own basic rights are not being protected and promoted? Um, and, and so, you know, this division it's, and, and competition um, sank in and really, really shaped the world. And what about the role of the Boric government and the coalition actually behind this uh, new uh, proposal? That is, in your recent uh, Jacobin article, you talk about this also coming about as a result of uh, a, um, a unification or united movement, really, between the social movements and uh, the labor movement. Uh, and that uh, that Boric had to hold these together in order to uh, make sure that this passes. Now, that seems to have failed, right? Um, how do you see the role of, of the government itself, of Boric, who, who you know, campaigned in, in favor of this, after all? I mean, uh, what, what, what could he have done differently, perhaps? Yeah. Uh, well, there are two questions there, right? One is, to what extent did the, the government and its actions um, shape the outcome of the, of the uh, vote? And then, you know, I, I think kind of almost um, implicit in what he said is, how will the outcome now shape, shape the government moving forward? Um, I, yes, Apro uh, Dignidad, which is the new left coalition, which is a coalition of um, Boric's um, alliance, which is called the Frente Amplio. It's a, this new radical left that emerged from the social movements. He himself was the leader of the student movement of 2011, 2012, by an alliance of of uh, his Frente Amplio with the old traditional Communist Party, which to begin with, I think is a watershed achievement in Chilean politics, right? For the first time in over 50 years, there is a real genuine partisan left competing for power, and they actually won presidential elections. Um, and the, albeit in the runoffs, right? But, but they won. And Boric's government um, kind of put all its eggs in the basket of the Constitution, 
right? It, in fact, it delayed sending a lot of its reform proposals to Congress, right? Expecting that it would get this huge shot in the arm once the Constitution was approved in the, in the exit referendum, right? Um, along the way, I think his approach uh, floundered in many, in many respects. Um, once it became clear, actually, that uh, rejection was a very real possibility, and this happened in February, around February. Up until then, all the polls said the Constitution would be approved in the public side. At that point, rather than stick with the strategy that he had already chosen, right, which is to go you know, full throttle ahead with the Constitution, he starts to send um, mixed signals. Right? Um, understanding that there was a real possibility that it would go down in defeat, um, he starts to say, you know, indep independent of that, my government will continue. We will seek other alliances, other understandings. And in fact, because the center left, the old center left that governed for most of the post-authoritarian period, um, has kind of through the has been smuggled into the the governing coalition, right? Since they began to have more and more influence, and sectors of the old center left actually started supporting aprobo campaigning. I'm sorry, campaigning for rechazo for rejecting the constitution, right? Um, Boric responded to that, reacted to that, rather than sticking the course, staying on course and move, moving forward. And so that he makes a, a deal with the old center left saying, yes, let's continue to um, campaign for approval. But once it's approved, once it passes, we will immediately make a number of constitutional changes to it. In other words, um, almost abandoning at that point any pretense that this was still his project. Right? And I think that um, further weakened the momentum that was already dwindling, um, you know, beginning in March, April, and certainly by June. And so what does this mean now for Boris's government and also for the reform process? Oh, it's, um, as I, as we said at the opening, it's a, just a huge blow. The damage done is incalculable and we still don't have a firm grip on the extent of that damage. Right. Um, I think there are kind of two extreme um, polls, right, in terms of what the government, um, in terms of opinions on what the government should do moving forward. One comes from the kind of radical identitarian left, right, and the other comes from the, 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 the centrist, right. Now, they both have one thing in common. They both hold ordinary Chileans responsible for the defeat, right. The kind of far identitarian autonomous left says, the people just don't get it. The people are just sexist. The people are just racist, right? They don't, they, um, don't understand what's in their interest. They rejected public pensions, et cetera, et cetera. What we need to do is go out there and have a cultural fight, an ideological fight to convince them. That is a total dead end um, path, in my opinion. The other side also blames the people, but in a celebratory mode, right? Look, the people know what they want and they don't want radical change. So what we need to do is restore the center-left progressive neoliberalism of the 90s and the aughts, right? And that, of course, means giving um, 
returning some real influence and power to the center-left parties that had been just almost thrown into the dustbin of history by events leading up to 2020, right? And this has revived their influence in many ways. So Boric is navigating, right, uh, an array, a range of options, um, you know, from one of those extremes to the other. In, in my view, given how thorough and, um, you know, undeniable the political defeat was, he's going to tack toward the center. He, he's got to, in, in a way, because if he tries to move forward with his reform program, which pretty much matched, you know, the contents of the, of the new constitution, right, um, the centrist and the right can correctly say that's not what the people want, and they will block him, veto, they have a majority in, in Congress, and, and they will block all his efforts that way. So he's going to have to turn to the uh, right and the, the the center, toward the right, unfortunately, and bring in more people from the old center-left concertación, as he's already done. He reshuffled his cabinet a couple of days ago. Um, but at the same time, attempt somehow, right? Even though a lot of people think his government is dead in the water right now, somehow to push forward some of the social reforms on which he campaigned. It's going to all be very, very difficult, extremely difficult. The um, you know field in front of him is mined, <laughs> full of, of landmines, if you will, metaphorically. Um, any any mishap, you know, he'll be torn apart um, by one side or the other, but mostly by the centrist and the right. And so he's got a very, very difficult path ahead of him. If anything, just to finish his, his term in office. Then um, I just want to put this, uh, and as I suggested during the beginning, also in the context of uh, Latin America, more generally, particularly the history of uh, Latin American constitutional reform efforts. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, during the so-called first pink tide, um, roughly between 2000 and 2010, there were three major constitutional reform efforts that actually succeeded. That has been in Venezuela, Bolivia, and in Ecuador. Um, how do you think those successful efforts compared to the one uh, undertaken in Chile, um, you know, 10 to 20 years later? I mean, what do you think was the key difference why that, those succeeded and this one failed? And you probably already alluded to some of those differences, but I yeah. didn't draw that out. No, no, it's, and, and, and I'll be quite frank. I've thought about this a lot and I still don't have, I think, a convincing answer for myself or, or, or for anyone else. Um, because the main reasons that I attribute this defeat to in Chile should have also been operating in Venezuela and Bolivia and in similar ways, and, and they weren't. So let me work backward. And, and I know you know the Venezuelan process and probably the Bolivian process better, better than, than I and, and, and see what we make of it. Um, you know, I spent some time in this interview um, going after, you know, this new radical um, identitarian and autonomous left in Chile, right? Um, but you have to place that in, in its proper context, right? Um, and I think the proper context are the political con consequences of, of neoliberalism, right? Which um, in disintegrating industry and restructuring um, agriculture, let's say agricultural production, really scattered people throughout and it made people fend for their their um, a, a set a number of, of a set of grievances in all different realms of social life, right? Housing, 
um, uh, violence against women, um, pollution, um, you know, uh, degraded schools, right? And so it pulled people away in, the, in this fragmentary sense. And that's what really, I think, um, shaped the emergence of mass movements on the one hand. On the second hand, just ordinary working Ch Chileans, normal people, right? Neoliberal development, what it has done from, uh, for them is to totally sever them from any kind of um, civic and um, uh, organizational or institutional fabric right in in their lives so they're kind of you know floating atomistically you know trying to take care of their their needs on their own well in this um second referendum or plebiscite there were a, there was a change in the rules and the electoral rules of the game which you alluded to which was that um, for the first time in chilean history there was automatic voter registration and mandatory voting what that resulted in was a massive expansion of the electorate, pulling in layers of voters who formerly had not voted, had been totally alienated from politics, right? Well, that, those swaths of new voters had no connection to any local organization, to any of these new mass movements, right? And so they entered the process they judged the, the convention and the constitution, right, in this atomized manner, susceptible to all kinds of mistrust and suspicions, right? Yeah, I think, I think that's very interesting, especially when you make the comparison to Venezuela. Exactly. Uh, because uh, there, the vote was not mandatory. You did have the same degree of fragmentation. Uh, right. But they weren't uh, required to vote. And so only those who were active politically already ended up going voting as usual. Uh, another factor, though, and this is kind of what I, I don't know if what you think of this, I think was, of course, the person of Chavez. And then, of course, in, in Ecuador yeah. and Bolivia, the, the presidents, you know, Rafael Correa and Evo Morales, I would say probably played a different role than Boric did in Chile. Did it? I think so. I think so. And I, and I think it's not just the... Um, the, the individual behaviors, right? Though, uh, you know, we, one should not downplay, right, the significance of a Chavez, you know, in those key years, right, leading this process. I mean, I was in, I was in Caracas in 2005, kind of like the height of it, of it all, right? And you could see the role he had of bringing people together, of saying, you know, presenting something, a, a complex policy in a simple way that everyone could identify with right that there's that was absolutely he played a central role in that but he's able to play that role because of how sweeping his victories had been i think right and part of that is um what was happening you know who he was and what his campaign did but part of it is also the depth of the disintegration of the old regime and the old parties right they lost i if I, you know, my, my, my read of it and, and something similar in Bolivia, just a complete loss of legitimacy, right? And representativity um, as, you know, parties of the old order and of elites. Something similar happened in Chile, but not to that extent. The old parties, while they are crumbling for sure, uh, retain some influence. And if you match that with the fact that you know, Boric in the first round of the elections actually got less than a quarter of the votes. 
and he wins not because and the runoffs and you know um, was I think beginning of, of December of last year not because there's this upswell and support for him the way there was for Chavez let's say but because people are voting against his rival this hard right um, you know it's a new harsh authoritarian right represented by Jose Antonio Cast right so Boric doesn't have the political capital doesn't have the the clout and the influence and the sway of a Chavez and you know the organizations that were backing him at the time so I think that's a good I think that's a great point you know as I said I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around this and um, putting it in comparative perspective as, as you did I think is, is really useful and um, you know the fact that those it sounds like those who came out to vote in uh, for the Constitution in Venezuela were the most kind of the weren't the alienated masses as it were right they were those who were had been most involved in the, the protest cycle right and in, in, in mass movements and, and social organizations whereas in Chile you know the bulk of people who came out right um, 13 million voters came out um, which is a you know a historic record for for a country like Chile um, you know that had a huge effect just to, to give listeners and viewers a, an idea um, the approval votes declined but not by very much it went from like um, five almost six million to almost five million it's a, it's a million a dip of a million, which is not insignificant, but it's not huge. Whereas votes for rechazo increased by six million. That's the kind of silent, alienated majority that um, was mobilized to vote because of the electoral rules and said, "No, we we don't want this." Now, that's that should not serve as a, a as an excuse, right, for the the mistakes that the left made. In fact, it should be quite the opposite. It should tell us that these are the people we need to win over and we need to convince. And moralizing about every issue that a social justice warrior can think about is not going to do it. I just want to conclude with one last point, of course, that this uh, reminds me also in terms of the connection or the comparison to Venezuela, which is, of course, that uh, the uh, the Chavez government also expanded the the franchise dramatically, but only much later. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. after the the population had really become politicized, thanks to the 2002 coup attempt against him right. and the oil industry shutdown, where people then really saw on whose side who was on on whose side, and uh, and then that's in that process expanded the franchise and the. Uh, number of people came out to vote just increased and increased quite steadily. So, uh, so in other words, a it was only after Chavez, so to speak, proved himself that, um, exactly, that he was yeah. able to win. I think that's a great point. And in Chile, in that sense, I think maybe Boric should have, you know, pushed his program from the beginning and tried to get some wins or at least have these um, policies fought over in the public, in the public sphere, right? Um, and to, to get people on one side or the other, right? Um, instead of waiting for the plebiscite to have them pronounce themselves, declare themselves. I think these are all great points and any any study of what happening, happened in Chile moving forward has to take this on. If, if you don't mind, I'd like to conclude with one point. Now, people have asked me, for, like, what's, is there a silver lining? I, I don't think so. It, it's such a crushing defeat, right? But there are some, um, facts and some um, patterns that point the way forward, I think. 
A lot has been made of the fact that poor people overwhelmingly rejected the Constitution, poor working people. In fact, there's a figure floating around saying that in the poorest comunas or townships of Chile, uh, 25%, only 25% of the people approved, 75% rejected. That's somewhat misleading in the following sense. The bulk of, the, of Chile's working class lives in the capital region. Uh, what's called Región Metropolitana, all the townships around the capital, Santiago, right? And some of those are very large. They're these mega townships which concentrate just masses of, of poor and working people, up to 400,000 in each. Well, in these working class, large, densely populated working class comunas or townships of, of the Región Metropolitana around Santiago, about 50% of the people voted in favor certainly not enough <laughs> to win this time around. But it is a, 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 a base, right? A foundation upon which to keep building this type of reform, you know, you know, politics predicated on universal material rights. And, and that's my read, right? We won't have these dramatic swings that many of us had hoped for. It's gonna be a longer road. It's gonna be Chile's 21st Century Road to Socialism, I believe. It's going to be a long and painful one, as we've just seen. It'll be littered by um, a number of defeats along the way. But there is a social basis there, right? And that's the basis that needs to lead the way, that needs to discipline the partisan activists, the um, movement cadre, right? Um, but, but it's there, and, and I think it, it can amount to something if, if the left takes the right lessons from this defeat. And having said that, I think um, there's also larger lessons for the left more generally, um, not just in Chile, but it seems to me from what you have said, I think these are lessons that the left in the United States, at least, uh, should also pay attention to. Absolutely. I was speaking to René Rojas, Professor of Human Development at the University, State University of New York, Binghamton. Thanks again, René, for having joined me today. Thank you. I thought it was a great conversation. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to the analysis.news. If you like our videos and podcasts, please make sure you visit the analysis.news website and make a donation there so we can continue to provide the service. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and or to the podcast channel. Thanks again.